I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, if you would, to Genesis 14. Last time we were together, we spent some time considering the first instance of the phrase Most High God within the Bible. And we talked about what this does and does not necessarily mean with regard to God. Uh, got a, a little bit technical, a little bit theological, uh, based upon a, a, and a, a more up-and-coming controversy uh, or, or theological divergence that we find in the church today, and I wanted to set that um, foundation and, and, and lay that warning in place so that if and when it comes about that you hear these things, you can know what, uh, how to orient yourself rightly to them. Now, today we're also going to be talking theology. So we're going to be staying in Genesis 14, and we're going to be uh, still thinking theologically. We're going to be talking doctrinally, but today we're going to talk about Melchizedek. Now, uh, Melchizedek doesn't come up very often, but it's come up a little more often um, than, than uh, may, maybe we would normally expect it in the church because it was not too long ago that I was preaching through Hebrews. And so we talked about Melchizedek uh, in Hebrews. However, we are going to talk about him again today because he has come up in our passage. And the phrase, Most High God, as we talked about it last week, was couched in a narrative surrounding Abram rescuing his nephew Lot from captivity at the hands of a military confederacy from the lands of the east. You recall that perhaps from a couple of weeks ago. This week we're going to pick up with Abram returning from conquering that military confederacy, bringing back the spoils of war. So if you're there in Genesis chapter 14, we'll begin in verse 17 where the Bible says this, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that would be Abram, after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. So Abram returns from this battle, and he is met by a man named Melchizedek. This man is given a twofold description within the text itself. He is first called the king of Salem, and second, he is called the priest of the Most High God. And Psalm chapter 76, Psalm 76, excuse me, verse 2, directly connects the city of Salem with what would eventually be the city of Jerusalem. To this end, we would believe that Salem was located in the same spot that would eventually become the great Jewish capital, the city of Jerusalem. So we find that Melchizedek is the king of this city, Salem, and that he is also a priest of the true and living God. Now, this is the first time that we observe this title, priest, in the Bibles. And remember, I've been encouraging you throughout the book of Genesis that when you read it, read it as if it's actually the first book of the Bible. So that as you're thinking through it, you're thinking through this is the first time that this, this, this title, priest, has actually been used. Why has it been used? We talked a little bit last week, actually, in our Sunday evening service about that title, Most High God, and how important it is as a understanding that God is above all other gods. So this is the first time that we find this title of priest in our Bibles, and, and the first time by a pretty wide margin. We will not see the concept of a priest arise again until Genesis 41, when Joseph is in Egypt, and he's interacting with the priests there in Egypt. 
But the concept is one that is very important in the Old Testament. So let's take a moment to understand what a priest is. Most of us naturally associate the idea of a priest in the Bible with the Levitical priesthood established in the days of Moses. Yet we find, as we see even today, that the idea of a priesthood is not exclusive to the law of Moses. Rather, it speaks of a person who has acknowledged authority to mediate between God and man. A priest is a person who has acknowledged authority to mediate between God and men. So a priest of Egypt would have been a man that that had acknowledged authority and was empowered by the culture to mediate, to stand between the Egyptian people and those that they called their gods according to their ordinances and according to their traditions. In the same way, a Levitical priest would be a man who was acknowledged and empowered to mediate between the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and Jehovah according to the ordinances of the Mosaic law. Now we know from scriptures that the church does not have a designated priestly class in the fashion of other religious systems. But rather, to the contrary, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So in this time, in this age, The Bible tells us that there is no designated earthly religious mediator between God and men. But rather, and we would say to the contrary, the only mediator between God and man is the man, Christ Jesus. That when Jesus died on the cross, his finished work secured righteousness through forgiveness for all men and women who would receive it. And in doing so, Jesus' death on the cross, his finished work, broke down the wall of separation between God and man, which had previously necessitated a class of men uniquely trained, uniquely sanctified, and uniquely empowered to operate in that role of mediator. And instead, he made us, as a collective body of the church, what 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 calls a kingdom of priests. A separated people ourselves who, through Christ, each have been sanctified and empowered to have direct access to God. Which means I don't have to go through a priest. I don't have to go through any man to get to God save the resurrected man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other mediator. You do not have to go through your pastor to get to God. You do not have to go through your father to get to God. You do not have to go through a priest to get to God. You can come to God directly through the blood of Jesus Christ. And within this new economy, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, Jesus is then called our great high priest. The man who is at the head of our order. We are a kingdom of priests And at the head of our order is the great mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the great high priest. And through his authority, we have our own authority. So that Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 tells us this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
We can have a boldness and a confidence to come before the throne, to bring our requests to God, to direct ourselves into his presence. And we should avail ourselves regularly to that opportunity for we have that opportunity and we can have boldness to have that opportunity because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, who is indeed that great high priest. We need not wait for the availability of a man or the blessing of a man or even the blessing of an institution. Through Christ, we have both authority and ready access to the throne of God. So that's the idea of a priest, and we see how that connects to the New Testament concept of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, as we understand this concept, Melchizedek actually plays a role in this. Melchizedek does not just play a role in what happened there in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek plays a role in our understanding of the position that Jesus Christ holds before God and that we have through Jesus Christ. So back in Genesis... We see this in verses 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, I already read it, but we'll read it again. King of Salem brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, professor, possessor excuse me, of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. So Melchizedek comes with celebration. He blesses Abram. In the name of the Most High God, and then he blesses the Most High God himself. And then we find at the end of verse 20, the Bible says, He, that would be Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, tithes of all. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, pronoun reference there, we see that it is Abram that is giving the tithes to Melchizedek. And once again, we find another biblical first here. We saw a biblical first in the name for God, Most High God. We saw a biblical first today in that we see this idea of a priest, and now we see a biblical first in that we have this concept of the tithe. We've come close to it before. When Abel and Cain were giving their offerings, they gave what was called a first fruits unto the Lord. But this is the first time where we see this idea of a tithe, uh, an older English word, which literally means a tenth, which is a good translation of the Hebrew word, which means a tenth. And that's something that we're going to talk about next week. So we've been working through all of these firsts. And next week, we're going to talk about this idea of the tithe, what it is, what it means, and how it connects to us today. But, so that'll be next week. But now we're going to come back to this guy, Melchizedek, for the, the, the latter part of our time together today. First, we'll finish the narrative. And then we've got a lot to say about Melchizedek. So in verses 21 to 24 of, of Genesis 14, the Bible says this. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is not thine, lest thou shouldst say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Anner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So following this time of worship to God, Abram comes back. Uh, he pays tithes to Melchizedek of all that they have. Uh, Abram is blessed. The Most High God is blessed. Uh, uh, Melchizedek comes with, with a, a, a celebration. And the Bible says after this that Abram then interacts with the king of Sodom. Now, we presume that the king of Sodom uh, fell in, in the battle. So this king of Sodom may be his son or, or, or some in inheritor of that throne. 
But this king of Sodom does something which we actually might consider to be potentially honorable here. We know that the Sodomites were not uh, well known at this point for being honorable people. And we see that in this narrative as well. But he tells Abram, he says, give me back all the people that were taken. We'll, we'll restore the people to the city and then you can have everything else. You can take all of the spoil. You can take all the goods of war. That would be the goods, uh, of so uh, pr presumably, of Sodom and then also the goods that they had pillaged from the Eastern Confederacy, right? So Abram goes and he destroys this, this confederacy of kings and uh, to the victor goes the spoils, as the old idiom says. And so they would have taken all of the riches that Chedeliomer and this confederacy of kings would have taken upon themselves and now they get all of those riches. Recall that Chedeliomer and these kings had pillaged all along the way through the fertile crescent. So there's probably quite a bit of wealth there. And uh, Sodom, the king of Sodom says, you can take all of that. I just want the people back. Well, good for him. This would be natural and right, right? Abram took the risk. Abram should be the direct beneficiary of that risk. However, Abram's response is very different than what we might have otherwise expected. Abram says that he has lifted up his hand to the most high God. The idea there would be to make a vow. If, you were, if you've ever been in a courtroom, right, they put their hand, I don't know, they still put their hand on a Bible? They probably shouldn't, but they put their hand on a Bible and then they lift their hand and they, and they swear to tell the truth and the whole truth, right? And the idea of lifting up your hand is to make a vow. So he says, I have lifted up my hand to the Most High God. I have made a promise to the Most High God. He says, save for the tithe that I gave to the Most High God and the people which were his, and then the things which his confederacy, those three brothers, Aner, Eskel, and Mamer, uh, wanted for themselves, he says, I have sworn to the Most High God that I will not take so much as a shoe latchet of the spoils, lest, he says, thou, that would be the king of Sodom, should say, I have made Abram rich." So Abram, knowing the character of the Sodomites and knowing the character of the king of Sodom, discerned that had he taken so much as a shoe latchet from the spoils of war, that the king of Sodom would then spend the rest of his days ascribing Abram's wealth to himself, saying that it was actually the wealth of Sodom that Abram was able to take, and that was the foundation for all of his wealth and for all of his strength and for all of everything. So basically, I made Abram what he is. And Abram was very intent on making sure that no one could strip from God the glory that was due unto his name for what God had done with Abram. God had blessed Abram. God had made Abram great. God had done these things because it was the vow that God had made to Abram that Abram was living under. And so he rejected certain financial benefits specifically to maintain a testimony. And that's the character, both we see the character of Abram there and we also see the character of of the king of Sodom. That's just the kind of guy the king of Sodom was, and that's the kind of people the king of Sodom ruled over. So Abram took nothing to himself. His only objective had been to deliver his nephew Lot and Lot's family from the captivity of the kings of the east. And once again, we gain in this a perspective on the character of the people of Sodom. Genesis 13, verse 13, has already called the people of Sodom wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. We also find through this account that they were men not to be trusted in business. 
And of course, Genesis 18 and 19 will find that they were men of tremendous sexual depravity. And with that, the city of Sodom will fall out of focus for several chapters. All right, now we've finished kind of expositing the passage. Let's refocus in now on Melchizedek. The actual appearance of Melchizedek in the narrative is very minimal, not just in Genesis, but in the Bible as a whole. But he is regarded as a very important figure, and that for the reason that I already talked about when we talk about Jesus as the great high priest. Melchizedek becomes the prototype. He becomes the prophetic connector between Old Testament intent that God had and what Jesus did on the cross. So that Melchizedek is one of those great testimonies in the Old Testament of what God had always intended to do through Jesus. Now we believe that Moses wrote Genesis, and I spent a a little bit of time a couple of weeks ago defending why it is we don't have to be concerned about that because of Genesis 14. And to that end, we know that the words of the book were recorded sometime prior to Moses' death, prior to the entrance of the people into the land of Canaan. Now, within the Bible timeline, try to follow it with me, we're in the days of Abram. From the days of Abram to the entrance to the land of Canaan, we're going to find is about 430 years, based upon what we know from Genesis 15, verse 13, and Acts chapter 7, verse 8. About 430 years between when Abram was given a promise in Genesis 15 and when they entered into the land of Canaan. Now, following this, we find that from the time they entered into the land of Canaan to the time where David ruled over the nation of Israel as a united kingdom was another about 440 years. So 430 years, I should have put a timeline up there for you, 430 years from Abram to Moses and then, well, to Canaan, the end of Moses' life, and then about 440 years from Canaan to David. That's 870 years or so between the time from Abram's, the promise to Abram, to the time of David. Now, in the days of Moses, 430 years after Abram, Moses writes of this man, Melchizedek. Abram meets this man, Melchizedek. Abram pays tithes to this man, Melchizedek. 430 years later, Moses writes this account of the days of Melchizedek, and he, he writes Genesis 14, where we see Melchizedek mentioned. Melchizedek would not be mentioned again in Scripture until the days of David, some 440 years after that. 870 years or so after Melchizedek lived. Melchizedek comes up again. He randomly shows up again in a psalm of David. So we read in Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of thy morning, of the morning, excuse me. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the days of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. So this is Psalm 110. And and this is what we call 
in Scripture a messianic psalm. So it was a psalm that has been identified well before the New Testament as being one that, that was speaking of and prophesying of the Messiah or the Christ that was to come. It was a prophetic song written by David, which looked forward to the deliverance of God's people through the promised king who would come, the, who the Jews called their Messiah. Messiah being a word which means in the Hebrew anointed or anointed one. So David speaks in Psalm 110 of a conversation between Jehovah and the one that David calls my Lord. So he said there at the beginning, the Lord, that would be capital O, L, capital O. Let me go back there so you can see it. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in verse 1. Anytime you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your King James Bibles, the word behind that is the word Jehovah. So the Lord, that is Jehovah, said unto my Lord, this would simply be that word Adonai, simply being a Lord, a master. So David says, the Lord Jehovah said unto my Lord. Well, who is David's Lord? And it is identified that this would be a conversation between Jehovah and Messiah. And Jehovah tells this Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool. So there is this Lord who is sitting at the right hand of Jehovah until such a time that Jehovah makes the enemies of this Lord, puts these enemies down, puts them at the footstool or has them bow before this Lord Messiah. An expression of this Lord's supremacy and exaltation. And then those expressions continue. So David then says in verse 4, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This Lord, who is invited to sit at the right hand of Jehovah God, called a priest forever, but not after the order of Levi. Instead, after the order of Melchizedek. And that is the distinction. David is writing in a time when the Levitical priesthood is dominant, where the Levitical priesthood is operating. But David makes very, very clear prophetically that the Lord is not, that this Lord will not be a priest after the order of Levi. He will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And here's the thing. David does not explain what that means. As a matter of fact, this is the, the, the second and only other time we find Melchizedek mentioned in the Old Testament. We find him in Genesis 14, where he is rejoicing over Abram's victory and Moses pays tithes, or Abram pays tithes to him. And then we see this very obscure reference to him in Psalm 110 that says that this Lord will sit at the right hand of Jehovah and that he will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he is a priest that is sitting at the right hand of God. Does that sound familiar to we who understand our New Testament theology? A great high priest sitting at the right hand of God. Now the question then becomes, where does Melchizedek come into this? And this is where we end up back in the book of Hebrews. Now again, I preach through Hebrews. There's a lot that I'm going to be saying today about Hebrews that I'm not going to be substantiating because I spent 54 weeks, I think, preaching through Hebrews. And so if you want to, you can go back and listen to that series. It's on YouTube. It's on Sermon Audio. And then you can get the fullness of the context for what I'm going to say today. Hebrews is a somewhat complicated book. The arguments that Paul makes in the book are deeply intertwined and heavily contextual. 
To that end, there's really nothing that I can do today to do justice to all of the context of Hebrews. So you can go back and listen to it if you want that context. Now, in relation to the connection between Psalm 110, Melchizedek, and Genesis chapter 14, the the connection between that and Jesus of Nazareth, Paul says this in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 10 to 11. He says, uh, regarding Jesus Christ, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. So Paul actually says in this book to those unto whom he was writing, this group of Hebrew believers, that he had many things to say about the connection between Jesus and Melchizedek, but he said these are hard to be uttered. They're difficult things. And he said it's made primarily difficult because the ones that he was writing to were dull of hearing. And he would go on to say that they were still stuck on the milk of the word and they had a real hard time chewing the meat of the word without choking. So when we dig into the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus, just know this. We're digging into difficult stuff. We're digging into the meat of the word. This is not simple stuff, although we are going to bring it back to milk at the end here. But this is difficult stuff. So Paul says it's things that are hard to be uttered that he struggled to write to them because they were dull of hearing. But that doesn't mean he wasn't going to do it. So he, could, he does do it. And he begins with this idea in Hebrews 6. And then uh, it gives way to a discussion of the man in Hebrews 7. So in Hebrews chapter 7, this is what we read in verses 1 through 11. Speaking, Paul speaking about Melchizedek. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually." Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction... The less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need was there that any priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Now, once again, the scope of Paul's argument here is beyond the focus of our time today. But functionally, we find that Paul is showing this, that Jesus' 
priestly ministry is greater than that of the Levitical priesthood and in fact ordained by God from the beginning to supersede the Levitical priesthood through his finished work on the cross. In other words, God had intended in Abram's day, 450 years before the law was given, God intended, and we see this in Abram's day, God intended to supersede the Levitical priesthood with something bigger, with something better, with something greater. And to that end, Paul speaks to the character and the nature of this man, Melchizedek. Paul's first emphasis is on Melchizedek's name and his position. His name is Melchizedek. It's a compound of two Hebrew words. Melchi is a form of the Hebrew word melech, meaning king. And then tzedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. So the idea here, Melchizedek, is king of righteousness. And this man, whose name means king of righteousness, was also, again, the physical king of this city called Salem. Salem, shalom, being that word for peace. So he is the king of peace and the king of righteousness. Paul then goes on to emphasize Melchizedek's legacy in Scripture. He comes as quickly as he goes. He's given no lineage. He's given no background. No father, no mother, no descent, no beginning of days, no end of days. He appears as quickly as he disappears. He's there in Genesis 14. He's gone. He peeks his head out in Psalm 110, then he's gone again, and that's it for Melchizedek. We have no information on him. We have no backstory on him. We have no understanding of why he was there. We have no understanding of where he went. And this means, in this sense, theologically, he remains a priest continually. Now, think through this from a priestly standpoint. In Genesis chapter 14, we wouldn't know this yet. But after, if we read Genesis, then Exodus, then Leviticus, then Numbers, then Deuteronomy, and you studied all of the things about the Levitical priesthood and all of the expectations of the Levitical priesthood, and then you go back and you think of Melchizedek, and the question you would ask would be this. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's his lineage? What right does he have to be a priest? Who's his family? Who's his mother? Who's his father? What order is he a part of? Those are the questions that Paul is saying. The Levitical priesthood, you had to be a Levite. It was, in, it was, it was very important. You had, you had this lineage. You carried forward this lineage. It was a part of a system. But see, Melchizedek, there is none of that in his account. There is no lineage. There is no system. There is no beginning or ending. He's there. As we think through this idea, we first speak to why it's, uh, we, we, we first speak to, to the, the, the thought of who is this man Melchizedek, excuse me. And there is substantial debate surrounding the text regarding this and, and, and what it means. If we take Paul's description of Melchizedek very literally, then Paul is telling us that this man was named the king of righteousness and the king of peace and he had no family, and he was never born, and he never died, and he was given tithes by Abraham, and he was like the Son of God. And this description can only really fit one person, and that would be the Son of God, right? So many believe that Melchizedek was, in fact, what we would call the pre-incarnate second person of the Godhead. And let me explain what that means. As we think through that idea, 
We know that any number of times within the scope of the Old Testament, spiritual entities appear before men. But we are not hasty to say that when these spiritual entities appear, that they are in fact God himself. And that's specifically because the scriptures have told us in no uncertain terms that no man has seen God at any time, right? For John chapter 1 verse 18 says no man has seen God at any time. John chapter 4 verse 12 tells us no man has seen God at any time. When Moses asked God, show me thy glory, when Moses was standing on the mount and he says to the Lord, show me thy glory in Exodus chapter 33, God says, I will pass by you and I will cover you with my hand and you will see my back parts for no man shall see my face and live. So we have this precedent in scripture that says no man has seen God. And we're predisposed then to understand that God is not seen. And so Jehovah has not been seen. Only instead, when we see these spiritual entities, that they are angels. If we take what we talked about last week, we might call them little G gods, right? The idea of beings of power and position, but never the most high God. So that would be our natural predisposition. And yet, as we walk through the Old Testament, that ends up not holding, holding water. It doesn't work that way. No man has seen the Father at any time, we could comfortably say. But we cannot necessarily say no man has seen the Lord, Jehovah, at any time. Because as we walk through the Old Testament, we find many instances of men saying that they have interacted with God himself, often through one that is called in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. And this curiosity is somewhat clarified or explained in an interaction that we find actually in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says this, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. Okay, so notice that when John sees this vision and he is compelled to fall upon his face in worship, he attempts to worship this angelic being and the angelic being explicitly denies, explicitly forbids worship. And he says, instead, I am just like the prophets. I'm a messenger just like them. Instead, worship God. So from this, we draw a general theological point, which is this. God's angels reject worship. They refuse worship. They will not abide people worshiping them because they are set to direct worship unto God himself. And this is a trend which we consider to be absolute. God's angels, his divine messengers, directly refuse worship. And instead, they compel the men with whom they interact to worship God. Okay, so we have this principle that says no man has seen God at any time. And we have this principle that says God's angels reject worship. Now we take those two ideas and we impose them upon the Old Testament. And here's where this helps us. Because all throughout the Old Testament, we find interaction with spiritual beings. And certain spiritual beings refuse worship and other spiritual beings do not. The spiritual being very often will accept this worship. Moses appears to the burning bush. And if you recall, the voice that comes out of that bush says, take off your, feet, your, your shoes, for you stand on holy ground. The idea of taking off my shoes in reverence for the place that I'm standing is 
worship. It is an action of reflecting worth upon the place that I am because of in whose presence I stand. So this entity that was the burning bush accepted worship. The same can be said of Joshua when he meets the captain of the Lord's hosts. The same can be said about the angel that appeared before Gideon and Manoah. We also find numerous times where the men involved in these interactions actually worship God. They make sacrifices. They build an altar to him. Or they acknowledge themselves that they interacted with God. Jacob wrestles with the Lord. And afterwards he says, I have wrestled with the Lord, right? Jehovah, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Abraham, we're going to see in Genesis, uh, later on in Genesis, Genesis 18, interacts with three angelic beings. And as he's interacting with the primary of those three, he says, I've taken upon myself to speak to Jehovah God. Manoah says that he has spoken with Jehovah God. These men being told or marveling that they had experienced an interaction with God himself and that they had not died. And this leads us to a general conclusion. And the general conclusion is that there was a spiritual entity who was the Lord himself who interacted with these men. We believe that because they accepted worship. This entity accepted worship. We believe that because it was acknowledged that he was God himself. And so we, as we consider our theology of who God is, we would generally believe this. When the Bible says no man has seen God at any time, when Moses had to be covered as God passed by him, we acknowledge there that the Father who is clothed in light cannot be seen. That no man can see his face and live. And yet there does appear to be one of the Godhead that is able to interact with men and willing to interact with men and thus become a mediator between God and man. Now, in the New Testament, we know exactly which member of the Godhead that is, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh, and there's no reason to believe that in the Old Testament it was not the same. That it was the second person of the Godhead, not yet Jesus. Jesus would not be born yet, and then he he would not take on human flesh until he was born of that virgin, born of Mary, and yet the the pre-incarnate, the pre-flesh, second person of the Trinity, we believe still regularly interacted with men by taking on some various form, whether that be a burning bush, or whether that be a pillar of fire, or whether that be a rock that Moses would, would speak to or strike, or whether that be the angel of the Lord, that the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, would interact with men on a personal level, so that men would give him worship and he would receive it so that they would walk away and say, I have seen the Lord and lived. Now all of that to say this, armed with this knowledge, we might understand why it is then that there are many people that say Melchizedek must have been the pre-incarnate second person of Christ, the pre-incarnate second person of the Godhead, second person of Christ, that wouldn't work, pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate second person of, of the Godhead. So that when Paul says that Melchizedek was without father and mother and having no lineage, no beginning or no ending, he must be speaking literally, necessitating that Melchizedek is God himself. And while it's not necessarily the greatest controversy of our time, um, I don't agree. I don't think Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate second person of the Godhead. And let me explain to you why. 
Melchizedek's name, and I'm going to give you several reasons. The first reason is this. Melchizedek's name, king of righteousness. And yes, Jesus indeed is the king of righteousness. Much later in the book of Joshua, however, we find that the king of this city that was Salem is now the city of Jerusalem and it's under Jebusite hands. And there's a king of the Jebusites in this time, a man who would be destroyed for his great wickedness along with the other kings of Canaan. And that king's name was Adonai Zedek, Lord of righteousness. So we find that in history, there was a king in this city and his name was the king of righteousness. Eventually, at some point, the title for that kingship transitioned from king of righteousness to lord of righteousness. And certainly this Jebusite king in the days of Joshua was not a lord of righteousness. To that end, I don't believe that him being named Melchizedek gives us an actual proof that Melchizedek was the second person of the Godhead. The second reason why we might think Melchizedek's, uh, as Melchizedek um, is Jehovah himself, excuse me, is because of Paul's description of the man. The man being without father, without mother, having no beginning of days or ending of days. There would be, however, two ways to consider this description. The first way would be literally, Right? That Paul is saying Melchizedek is an eternal man. He had no father. He had no mother. He had no beginning of days. He has no end of days. In which case, he must be God. That that only describes God. But remember what I said a little bit earlier. That what Paul is emphasizing there is the timeless nature, not of the man, but of the priesthood. That the priesthood is not bound by lineage. That the priesthood is not constrained by the same elements of time and of circumstance that the Levitical priesthood is constrained by. So if what Paul is emphasizing, and by the way, I do believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Go back to my first Hebrew sermon if you want to. If that's distracting you, my first Hebrew sermon explains that one. So I I just say Paul. If if Paul is, is focusing rather on the priesthood than the man then it makes perfect sense that within the narrative, Moses and David saw fit not to tell us anything about his father, anything about his mother, anything about his beginning, anything about his ending, and that's specifically because Melchizedek would become a prophetic type, a picture, a prophetic lesson of Christ himself, of a priesthood that has no beginning or end, of a priesthood that is not bound in any way, shape, or form to some sort of lineage but rather an eternal priesthood. And that would be the idea that Paul is making a particular note of the fact that the Old Testament Bible, for all of its emphasis upon bloodlines and on lineage, intentionally left out the bloodline of this man, Melchizedek, making him, biblically speaking, a timeless man with a timeless priesthood, specifically so that he could be a metaphor for the priesthood which Jesus would have one day among his people. And I believe that to be a credible thought. Not that Melchizedek, the man in history, was without father or mother or beginning or ending, but rather that God put the account of Melchizedek in Scripture, emphasizing his priesthood, but omitting his lineage very intentionally so that we could learn this important lesson about the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you one more reason before we kind of wrap things up this morning as to why I do not believe Melchizedek was the second person of the Godhead. And I think this is the most definitive and, the, and truly the most important. Within the scope of Paul's teaching on this matter in Hebrews, Paul connects 
the Old Testament prophecy of Jesus as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek with a second Old Testament prophecy. I skipped it last time, but notice what we read in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto them, all them, excuse me, that obey him. So Paul links two prophecies here. Two statements that Jesus Christ is the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that from Psalm 110, with another prophecy in Psalm 2 that states that Messiah would be begotten of God on a specific day. The, the um, idea there, uh, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, the cults will use that idea that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God to say that Jesus is a created being. That Jesus had a beginning, right? That's what the Mormons would say. That's what the Jehovah's Witness would say. Uh, talking through the, the lens of what we learned last week, the idea that Jesus is a lesser God. We do not believe that. However, it is also very, very important, this idea that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. If you were to consult a modern translation, you will find that they replace only begotten son with one and only son. This is a tragic replacement because only begotten son does not mean one and only son. They do that because they are afraid that if you read only begotten, you're going to say Jesus was begotten, therefore Jesus was created, therefore Jesus must have been a created being and it's going to, it's going to threaten our theological standing. But see, the Bible is the best commentary on itself. The Bible defines itself and the Bible defines what it means that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. From Psalm 2, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. What day was it that the, great, that, that the Son of God was begotten of God? Acts chapter 13, verse 33. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. He became the author of eternal salvation. Oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm skipping things here. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. What day was it that Jesus became the only begotten Son of God? It was the day of His resurrection. On the day of His resurrection, He became the only begotten Son of God. Well, pastor, He called Himself the only begotten Son of God while He was still alive. Yes, because Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So, yes, outside of time, He has always been the only begotten Son of God. So He could call Himself the only begotten Son of God. But there was a day... The day that Jesus raised from the dead was the day that Jesus earned this title, the only begotten son. And he had called himself the only begotten son before the resurrection. But in time, he earned that title through his finished work. Now going back to Hebrews 5 then. 
Paul links the idea of Jesus being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek to the day that he was begotten. I believe the implication of the text then is this, in that those two prophecies are linked in Hebrews 5. The implication is this, that Jesus earned the right to be connected to the order of Melchizedek through the obedience that he learned by the things which he suffered. Meaning to me, not that I'm not private interpretation, but what I believe this means is that Jesus was not actually declared a high priest after the order of Melchizedek until after he had suffered and died on the cross. That is when he earned the right to be a part of that priestly order. Risen again, earning that title, the begotten son of God, becoming that high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Well, then Jesus was not a high priest. The pre-incarnate second person of the Godhead was not already in the order of Melchizedek in time yet. He did not enter into the order of Melchizedek until he was resurrected from the dead. If we take Hebrews 5, if we connect those prophecies as Paul does. So the second person of the Godhead, to be a priest in this order before this sacrificial obedience would undermine everything that Paul is emphasizing about his qualifications. He qualifies to be that high priest because of the suffering that he learned. And why do we know that? Because then Paul goes on to say, therefore we know that we do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But he was tempted in all points like as we and yet without sin. That's why we can come boldly before the throne because we know that we have a high priest that understands us and we know that we have a high priest that understands us because he became a high priest through the things which he suffered. Which means I don't think the pre-incarnate second person of the Godhead was a high priest in Genesis 14. Yet. Because that would undermine the fact that he could not be that until he had learned through his suffering and subjection obedience. To this end, I strongly believe Melchizedek was just a man, not the angel of the Lord. But far from minimizing then his importance, we find that Hebrews calls this man one of utmost importance. And let's talk about that importance as we close. I know I filled your brain with stuff today. Now let's just take it down a little bit. We've done the meat. Now let's bring it back to the milk. Wash it all down. The importance of Melchizedek in the Old Testament is negligible. He only serves as a part of a historical narrative. Genesis 14. Then he kind of pops up in Psalm 110. But as we carry that narrative through Psalm 2, then through Psalm 10, and into the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek becomes a very important man. What we come to is this theological reality that there was a priesthood that existed long before the Levitical priesthood. And this priesthood, by virtue of Abraham paying tithes to it, is biblically pronounced to be a greater priesthood than that of Levi. This priesthood, unlike that of Levi, is not dependent upon lineage, but is rather dependent upon obedience. And this priesthood was intended by God to supersede that of Levi, to be greater, to be more excellent. And it is this priesthood into which Jesus Christ has entered by virtue of his obedient suffering, reminding us that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law 
Jesus Christ being made that curse for us, reminding us that we are not beholden to a set of earthly ordinances because those earthly ordinances have been superseded by heavenly ordinances. And so Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9 tells us that Jesus being made perfect through his obedience became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. And it is this that we close with today. It's been a complicated and involved message as various points of doctrine can be complicated and involved. But the root of that tree, we've been hanging out in the branches today, but the root of that tree is not complicated, Christian. In fact, the root of that tree is beautiful in its simplicity. You are a sinner. Your sin has separated you from a God who is holy because a God who is holy cannot have spiritual fellowship with a sinful man. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, only begotten son, by virtue of the resurrection, this man named Jesus, who became a man, God in flesh. This man lived a perfect life. Unlike you and I, he never sinned. Unlike you and I, he was never separated from the Father. They lived in perfect harmony so that he would say during his life, I and my Father are one. Never did he fall out of fellowship with a holy God. And he came with a message. And that message is and was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, you must be born again. He came to tell us that there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves from our sins. There was nothing that we could do to remove the separation that was between us and a holy God. That no amount of good works, that no amount of money, that no amount of personal will could overcome the penalty for our sin. But instead... This one, this only begotten son, came, and though he had lived a perfect life, he announced that he himself was going to pay for our sin, was going to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this is exactly what Jesus did. The Bible says Jesus gave himself up to be killed by sinful men, that he was lashed, he was beaten, he was bruised. And that at the end of this beating, as he was dying, hung upon a cross where he would suffer and die. The Bible says that the Father took your sin and my sin, and he punished Jesus for that sin. 2 Corinthians 5 telling us, He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took our sin and he replaced it with his righteousness. So Jesus then died and he was buried. But the Bible says three days later he rose again from the dead, proving that God had accepted this sacrifice, becoming the only begotten Son of God, being made worthy of entering into that order of Melchizedek by which he could sit on the right hand of his Lord. Jehovah, where he could ever live to intercede, where he could mediate between me and God Most High. And his promise on that day was that anyone and everyone who would come to him willingly 
who had come to him the same way he had come to the cross. Obedience. Submit themselves to these truths that you are a sinner, that you need forgiveness, that Jesus has offered that forgiveness to you through the finished work of the cross. Anyone who would accept that gift of salvation will be saved, will pass from death unto life, will be made a new creation in Christ. And I know we have talked about much today, and I hope that for some in this room, uh, we've covered topics that have edified you and answered questions for you and have, have increased the depth of your knowledge as it relates to Melchizedek and what, what Paul is teaching in Hebrews 5. But the reason Melchizedek exists in Scripture, very simply put, and like so many other things in Genesis, the reason why Melchizedek is there in Genesis 14, coming back from the slaughter of the kings, is so that you and I could see Jesus a little bit better. It's to point us to Jesus. So if all of the technical details of the day made no sense to you, or you're not quite there yet, or even fall on deaf ears, let these last few minutes be the thing that sticks. That there's a God in heaven who loves you, who sent his son to die on the cross to purchase forgiveness for sins, who rose again the third day in victory over death and hell in the grave, and who says that anyone who would come unto him, he would in no wise cast out. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And if you have never accepted that gift for yourself, going all the way back to those very first chapters of Genesis, the Bible makes it very clear that this is what God wants for you, from you. This is what God has designed history around. In Genesis 14, God was showing us Jesus. In Genesis 3, God was showing us Jesus. God has always had Jesus as a part of the plan, which means he's always had you on his mind. He's always had your redemption on his mind. He's always had your forgiveness on his mind. But the question is, are you going to accept it? He wants your heart. He wants your love. A love that is a response to the love which he has already offered you and shown you on the cross. He can do no more to show you his love. Pastor, are you sure that God loves me? Yes, Jesus died on the cross for you. What more could he do to show you his love? There is nothing more he could possibly do to show you his love. He already sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. By the way, Christian, maybe you're struggling with sin today. You're very upset at yourself and you're, you're alienated. And you say, God, there's no way he can possibly love me. There's no way he can possibly accept me because of what I have done. You know how I know he loves you? You know how you can know he loves you? Because he's already paid the price. He can do no more. He's already sent his son to die on the cross for you. He's already done the absolute maximum possible expression of love. He can do no more. Would you just believe it? Amen. That's what he asks. Accept that gift. For those of you who are believers, live into that gift. And perhaps some here today, as I've said these things, you're a bit confused. I went from going 100 miles a minute on theology to the simple stuff, and it's all jumbled in there somewhere. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you need more insight. Would you come to me? And I can take some time throughout this week and open a Bible and show you the answers to your questions. All unto this end. The end that God put Melchizedek in the Bible for, that we might know that we have been forgiven. 
and that we have a relationship with God through the one that is the great high priest who sits on the right hand of the Father, whoever lives to intercede, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.